Our uh, Old Testament reading comes from Genesis uh, chapter 4. I'm going to start with verse 8. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Our uh, New Testament reading is from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I'm going to start in chapter 4, verses 16, and read to 21. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And our sermon text today is from Exodus 7. And uh, we will be reading 14 through 25. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. Take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile. And all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. He would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the wild Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So, as uh, you can see, we, were, we are returning to our study of the book of Exodus. 
And uh, you may remember that when we laugh less Exodus, uh, Moses had been commissioned by Yahweh, uh, the Lord, to confront Pharaoh and command Pharaoh to send away the Israelites who Pharaoh had enslaved. Now, usually when we read this story, the way this text translates it, the particular version I was reading, and usually in our popular imaginations, particularly if we think about Charlton Heston and the Ten Commandments, we usually think of uh, Pharaoh or uh, Moses commanding Pharaoh to let my people go. That's kind of become the phrase we associate with the Exodus. Uh, but in fact, the phrase is probably better translated as send my people away. Now, I make this point because it's important in understanding this story. That not only are the Israelites freed, that's, a, that's definitely a goal of the Exodus, but part of the point of the Exodus is that Pharaoh himself bends to Yahweh's will. It's Pharaoh who actually is the one who sends them the way. And that's going to become important, important as we shall see. The goal is that Pharaoh and everyone else acknowledge who Yahweh is. He's not just a powerful God. The Egyptians had lots of powerful gods. Yahweh is not just one more force in their pantheon, but he is the supreme creator and only God. That's part of the point of the Exodus. Now, if we look at our passage, the beginning of chapter 7 tells us that Pharaoh's granting of freedom to the Israelites will be accomplished as Moses performs a series of signs and wonders. Now, we typically refer to this as the ten plagues. Again, that's, you know, something pretty common. And interesting, uh, they are never collectively referred to as plagues. That's not a uh, term that's ever used. That's a term we use. And their number isn't actually ever stated as ten. In fact, there's some argument about how many plagues there actually are. Uh, one scholar of Exodus that I really respect quite a bit uh, argues for them being numbered as twelve. But in any event, uh, I'm not really so much concerned about the number, but I am interested in the fact that this that we get away, kind of move away from using this term plagues, okay? Because Exodus actually uses the term signs and wonders. Uh, the word plague is used for one particular sign. So there is a, uh, the, there's a pestilence that kills all the Egyptian livestock. That's called a plague. But the phrase signs and wonders is what is repeatedly used throughout uh, these next few chapters. Now, because that's the phrase Exodus uses, I'm going to try to use that as well. Now, I'll probably mess up. I'll probably you know, slip every once in a while and still call them plagues. But I want you to think that, that signs and wonders, the reason I'm making a point about this is because signs and wonders convey something different than plagues. And, of course, here, uh, understanding the Hebrew is important. So the reason um, I want to talk about plagues is because a sign points to something, okay? Plagues are just kind of like punishment. Plagues are kind of like display of power, but a sign does more than that. A sign points to something. So, for example, um, the rainbow, okay? So the rainbow is given as a sign to Noah and humanity to point to the truth that God is not at war with humanity, okay? That's what that sign represents. It's not just about being a rainbow. It's what it tells us about God and what God's doing with humanity. Um, a wonder is also a type of sign, but it's usually associated uh, when we, we come across this word, it's usually associated specifically referring to a display of God's power. And so the key here I'm trying to make is that um, these are more than just simple displays of power intended to overawe 
uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Uh, we kind of see them as kind of these like random, like, oh, this is like a cool thing. Um, nor are they like punishments uh, simply intended to, uh, you know, just uh, to, to, to retaliation of the cruelty of the Egyptians. And there are some elements to both. There are uh, some times when these uh, signs are meant to be punishment. They are meant to be, uh, you know, to highlight the cruelty of the Egyptian slavery. But they are more than that. Uh, they are displays of God's power that reveal something about who Yahweh is. So these are not just arbitrary acts of God, if you will. Um, now, Exodus tells us as much in chapter 7, verse 5. When Yahweh lays out his plan to compel Pharaoh to release the Israelites through sign and wonder, it says specifically, uh, the point of that is that the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. In other words, if God is just simply freeing the Israelites. He could have done that any number of ways. He could have, you know, done some kind of teleportation. He could have sent, uh, you know, a herd of uh, magical llamas to beat up the Egyptians and then carry the, you know, Israelites away. I mean, you know, we could come up with anything. These, uh, these signs that were specifically chosen because they're going to reveal to us some things about Yahweh. And remember, knowing Yahweh, knowing who Yahweh is, the identity of Yahweh is a major theme of Exodus. And knowing uh, in the Bible, in the Hebrew imagination, is more than just factual knowledge, okay? Knowing is experiential, it's relational. We talked about that back when we looked at Exodus chapter 4, when the name Yahweh was revealed to the Israelites, so as we study these signs and wonders, what we need to look at is what is being revealed. What is being revealed uh, to us about the character of Yahweh, particularly as it relates to humanity. Now, just a few things here. If we look at our passage today, uh, it begins with the words, then Yahweh said to Moses. And as we will see, this is a repeated, uh, repeated before each sign. Uh, it's kind of given as a way to help us organize this material. Remember, they didn't have chapter divisions back then. So this was uh, this phrase is a way to do that. And for, verse 14 goes on to tell us that Pharaoh's heart is heavy, heavy, and he refuses to send the people away. Now, anyone who has read this section of Exodus, who is familiar with this, knows that the, the condition of Pharaoh's heart is a really important point in the Exodus. Uh, Yahweh says at the outset that he himself will uh, harden Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh will not listen to Moses. Now, we're not going to get into a lot of it yet. We're going to kind of approach this in layers. But this issue of who hardens Pharaoh's heart and what's going on when it specifically says that Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart uh, is a big uh, stumbling block. I mean, it's kind of difficult to understand. Uh, Yahweh makes Pharaoh's heart heavy, forcing Pharaoh to reject uh, his own demand, and then he punishes Pharaoh for it. Um, that seems uh, troublesome to us. Uh, it, it, it seems like uh, he's forcing Pharaoh to do something against his will and then punishing him for us. Now, like I said, we'll, we'll kind of approach this uh, issue in steps. I just want to kind of point it out now. But for now, let's just read. It says that it just tells us that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And the Hebrew word used here is kaved, okay, which means heavy. That's a great translation of it. 
Now, here's a few things we need to understand about that word so we can understand the meaning of the phrase. First, the heart was the center of everything in uh, ancient Egyptian, pretty much everybody's thought back then. It was the heart was the important organ. Rationality, emotion, decision making, all of that came from the heart. Uh, it's the same place. Uh, they didn't have this uh, sharp division between thinking and feeling we do. Okay, so we typically think about like, you know, rational thought and like emotions. They didn't have that. Okay. Um, they weren't so uh, neatly distinguished the ancients. Uh, interesting enough, uh, there's uh, interesting neurological research about brain and cognition that shows that that's a pretty artificial division. But in any event, so maybe the ancients are right. But the key here is to think of them together. Second, in the Egyptian thought, the heart and its operations and thinking and feeling were even bigger uh, than simple operations, okay? Uh, particularly for the Pharaoh. Um, it was about being in accord and one with the universal principle of harmony that ordered the cosmos, okay? So we're, we're almost thinking like more Eastern here. You know, I don't know anything about Eastern thought necessarily, but, you know, when you think about chi and stuff like that, this is probably closer to something like that. For the Egyptians, the principle of order of the universe was called ma'at. And we know from a very influential Egyptian text called the Book of the Dead that the heart of the deceased was weighed against the feather of ma'at to determine its fate in the afterlife. Now think about that. So when we're using this term heavy of heart and we're talking about the heart eventually getting weighed to judge whether or not it's harmonious with the universe and this principle of ma'at that's like super important to the Egyptians, now we're entering a different kind of thought realm than just what may be on the surface. That's why it's kind of important to understand the, con the context. Now, ma'at is the kind of a foreign concept to us. It can be hard to relate. It's a bit abstract. Uh, it's probably best to think of ma'at as something like justice or fairness. Um, if you study like Western philosophy, like if you take in a philosophy class, you may remember sometime talking about like natural philosophy. Uh, the idea that like we should be in harmony with like the natural laws of the universe, okay? Uh, now we tend to think of justice and fairness, uh, you know, when we think of justice and fairness, we think of it being applied equally. Uh, otherwise, justice is arbitrary and capricious, which is bad. You know, it's like kind of like how our legal system is set up. Uh, well, you can let Dale uh, go wax eloquently more about that, I'm sure, about the principle of equity. But that's kind of how we think about law and justice. For the Egyptians, everything should be ordered to create harmony. Otherwise, the world is chaotic which is bad. So chaos is bad. You know, they live in a world where they had very little control. And so like chaos was the big bad thing that was out there. Uh, the Israelites, interesting enough, I think they have an equivalent concept to Ma'at. And it's what we usually think of as wisdom. Okay. So when, you know, we read about the wisdom literature in the Bible, that's actually pretty similar. Um, and, and wisdom is maintained uh, by uh, justice and righteousness. Uh, you know, in Hebrew, it's uh, uh, these terms are justice and righteousness are used up again and again. Uh, we maintain justice and, and righteousness, and that is wisdom. And therefore, we create harmony. We are uh, uh, against chaos. Now, I make this point so that you can understand that for the Egyptians, a heavy heart was not just about being stubborn or obstinate, which is how we particularly read it. 
Rather, a heavy heart was actually much more significant than that. It was one that was disruptive to the right ordering of society. Uh, since it was the job, uh, first and foremost, of the pharaoh to rule Egypt and according with Ma'at, this was a serious issue. Pharaoh's heart is being shown here to be unharmonious, unjust. His action, and since his actions and decisions originate from the heart, they are bound to bring chaos rather than order. Okay, so that's what what's being demonstrated here. Now, as we continue in our study, we come to this detail. Uh, if we continue in the the chapter, we come to this detail that Pharaoh goes to the bank of the Nile in the morning. To, to go out to the water. You know, Yahweh uh, actually kind of predicts that's what's going to happen. Well, he, the reason that's predicted is probably what's going on here is some kind of ritual. This is a part of some kind of ritual, probably having to do with maintaining uh, Ma'at. Maybe Pharaoh is observing the Niles to look for, you know, signs that Ma'at was being maintained. Maybe he's performing some kind of ritual at the Nile to ensure that Ma'at gets maintained. Because, uh, you know, it is the Nile that is the basis of the Egyptian civilization's greatness. It's the fact that it has regularity. It's this predicted ordered behavior, this harmony that it creates, this, you know, once again, Ma'at. Now, this is not the only detail that's important here, right? So, you know, Pharaoh's going down here to, uh, to establish harmony in Ma'at. Uh, so uh, there, there's lots of language here that uh, calls back other things. Moses stands on the, back of the Nile, or on the bank of the Nile to meet Pharaoh. Now, this same phrase was earlier used when Moses' sister Miriam stood on the bank of the Nile when baby, Pharaoh, maybe baby Moses was rescued by the Pharaoh's daughter. So remember that story, okay? Same phrase being used here. Uh, Moses strikes his staff. And uh, that was last used to demonstrate our pow- his power by changing the staff into a serpent. So this word strike. Strike is also the word that uh, the Pharaoh uh, uses when he strikes the Hebrew slaves, okay? That, that word comes up over and over again. Uh, we're told that the, uh, the Nile stinks because of dead fish. Uh, that word stinks is over and over again, you know? It's kind of funny when I was reading this, like you really hear the repetition of it. In chapter five, Moses had demanded uh, Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to worship Yahweh. Pharaoh denied, and he refused to provide them straw for their bricks, but he uh, didn't lower the quota of brick production. And at one point, the Israelite overseer uh, directs his anger toward uh, Moses uh, for provoking Pharaoh to do this and says that he has made the Israelites stink before Pharaoh. So there's lots of callbacks. I just want to point that out. You know, once again, you know, when we read these words, we kind of, we need to think about how it connects to the earlier part of the story. Now, Notice also, as we read on, the magicians are able to replicate this sign. Uh, now, you'll remember this happened in the last, uh, uh, the last uh, chapter uh, when Moses and Aaron's uh, staff turn into the serpents. And it sometimes bothers people, particularly like, uh, you know, people who have like a very uh, uh, pious view uh, when they read this. They're like, well, well, you know, how are these magicians able to replicate God's signs? And 
I think, though, that this is actually an example of ironic humor. Uh, you know, because what would have been useful is if the magicians uh, made the servants disappear or, like, maybe, I don't know, made the Nile River, like, clean and not have blood. Instead, they just made more bloody water, you know? Uh, in both instances, the, the, the magicians actually increased the problem. Uh, and in fact, uh, the fact that the magician's unhelpful sorcery increases Pharaoh's resolve highlights Pharaoh's stupidity. You know, what we're seeing here is really, you know, Pharaoh's like, oh, look, my magicians can do it too. Yahweh must not be that great. Well, you know, that's, that's kind of dumb. Um, and I think we're actually supposed to take this comically. You know, we tend to read the Bible very seriously, but I think this is actually a little bit of uh, humor being injected here. We're just supposed to see this, the uh, stupidity of the magicians, which were, you know, that was a well-regarded magic in Egypt in the ancient world would have been something that was well-regarded. Here, it's being made fun of. And particularly Pharaoh's uh, actions because of this is like, I mean, like, you know, how stupid is this guy? Now, I began the sermon by making this point that turning the water of the Nile into blood is a sign. And the reason it's important to call it a sign rather than a plague is because signs point to something. And specifically here, they point to something about Yahweh. They teach us something about Yahweh. That's, that's what, uh, as we go through uh, this section, who knows? I don't know how many, if we're going to do each of the signs or not, all 10 of them. I don't know. I haven't decided yet. Um, but what we need to do as we look through here is ask ourselves, what is this sign trying to tell us about Yahweh? Now, on one hand, we can read this, and it may seem relatively straightforward. Uh, Yahweh has struck the very basis of Egyptian civilization, uh, taking their greatest asset, the Nile, and making it useless. Uh, rather than a symbol of life and fertility, the Nile has become a symbol of death, of blood. And, you know, I don't think that that view is wrong. I don't think we're wrong to read it to that. Uh, but I think there is more going on here. If we stop there, I think we miss a bigger point. And I think part of the problem, the reason we stop there is because symbols can work uh, differently in different cultures. Now, let me, tell, let me explain what I mean by that uh, with the aid, aid of a, a helpful illustration. Okay, so Australia, okay, we think about Australia, Australia is home to lots of cool animals, right? And one of those cool animals, there's a variety of possum that lives there. Uh, it's called the common brush-tailed possum of Australia, and it's different from the possum we have. It looks a similar, but Australian possums are, are smaller, and they're definitely cuter, okay? Um, and as a result, Australians kind of love them, okay? They have, uh, you know, little brush-tailed possum uh, stuffed animals. They probably decorate their house in them. They're actually quite, quite nice. You know, they like looking out in their yard and seeing the possums playing and that kind of thing. So if you Google an image of a brush-tailed possum, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. They're pretty cute. However, in 1850, the brush-tailed possum was introduced to New Zealand with not great results. Uh, the possum became an invasive species there. And worse, one of the things that these possums do is they eat the eggs of the kiwi bird. And as you may know, that is the national symbol of New Zealand. So basically the equivalent of us of something eating bald eagle eggs or something. 
Now, as a result, in New Zealand, the possum is terrible. Uh, and New Zealanders are encouraged to kill them on sight. Now, I know this because of a friend of mine who went to New Zealand one time, and he was in a tour group that consisted of a large number of Australians. And while they were on a tour somewhere, they uh, came across a possum. Now, the tour guide, who was from New Zealand, because of his culture, the right thing to do was immediately dispatch of this uh, menacing possum. Uh, it's a terrible nuisance that needs to be eradicated. However, for the Australians, this possum is an adorable, friendly animal. You can imagine how hilarity ensues. But that's the point here. Different, uh, this symbol can be viewed different ways in different cultures. Now, let's look at the symbol of blood. Now, we typically find, think of blood, we typically find it repulsive. We don't like it. Uh, it's gross. And we think of it as a symbol of death. You know, blood is pretty much always a symbol of death. However, we find that blood is a much more complex symbol in the Old Testament. After the flood, when the earth is being reestablished, God issues a strange command. From now on, uh, humans are forbidden to eat meat with the blood still in it. The blood must be drained from the animal before it's consumed. And this is still part of the uh, kosher regulations of, the, uh, uh, of Jewish people today. And so there's a special salt they use, kosher salt, right? And uh, the reason they use kosher salt is because it's really good at removing blood from meat. Okay, the surface area extracts more blood out of your cut of meat. And that ensures that the cut of meat is acceptable for uh, kosher consumption. Now, here's the interesting part. Genesis 9.4 says that this is commanded because the blood is equated with the animal's life. So here the blood is not a sign of death, but the very opposite, a sign of life. And so for the Israelites, it's better to think of blood of the animal as something like the life force of the animal. Uh, Leviticus 17 actually goes even further. Verse 11 says, For the life of the flesh is the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. And so here again, in this Leviticus passage, it's like really important Leviticus passage ever because it's kind of describing like how the sacrificial system works. We have blood being equated with life. Not only that, the blood is specifically given by God as a gift to humanity so that the blood may provide atonement. Blood functions in the sacrificial ritual as the life force that allows humanity to draw near to God. The uh, logic is it's necessary uh, to, to bridge this, this mysterious force, this life force that is symbolized by the blood, bridges our world to heaven because a blood is kind of like this holy detergent. It's like a, it cleanses away sin and it allows us to traverse from one domain to the other. I don't know, you know, think about the, uh, you know, the, the rainbow bridge that connects Midgard with Asengard or something like that. And think about it. God's the creator. God is life. If you want to approach God, you can't have sin and death. You have to have life. And so that's what the blood is being used to symbolize. It allows us to connect 
with the origin of life, the creator God. Now, my point in this is that blood is a bit more of a complex symbol than we might realize, which is why I think it's wrong for us to view the plague simply as Yahweh turning a symbol of life into one of death. This works well with our conception of blood, but there's more going on. And as if we know, if we want to understand Exodus, we need to read it in the light of Genesis. So, back in Genesis, we are told the story of Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother Abel. And so Yahweh confronts Cain, issuing judgment upon him. And we are told that Yahweh hears the blood of Abel crying out. Cain's deeds will not be allowed to stand because God has heard the blood of the innocent Abel. Violence and murder are not allowed to have the last word in creation. The world will not be ruled by the principle of might makes right. And as the story of Genesis uh, goes on, we are repeatedly, re- repeatedly reminding of this. Yahweh sees and hears the victims of oppression. Think of Hagar. Think of Ishmael. Think of uh, the people persecuted in Sodom and Gomorrah. Think of Joseph. Over and over again, God hears. And I think it's important that we are able to understand the symbol of blood, which for Yahweh and the Israelites is not repulsive, but rather life, this powerful, mysterious life force. A force that is powerful enough to cry out beyond death. A declaration of injustice that is heard and which is answered by Yahweh. Pharaoh's heart is heavy. Pharaoh has rejected the way of order, of wisdom, of justice. Pharaoh has opposed the plan Yahweh purposed for Israel to be fruitful and multiply and has instead exploited, oppressed, and murdered the Israelites. And now their very life force is crying out to Yahweh. So if we follow this line of thought, we see that by transforming the water of the Nile into blood, Yahweh is showing Pharaoh the world as Yahweh sees it. For Pharaoh, the Nile is a source of strength, prosperity. But what Yahweh does when he sees the Nile is he sees the Nile as innocent blood crying out because of what Pharaoh has done, you know, killing the uh, Israelite babies there. This is not just a plague, but a revelation, a revelation of God's character that sees the world in a different way. What Yahweh has revealed in this sign is that he is a God who passionately cares about people because he is the very giver of life. And what is revealed is a God who looks at Egypt and does not see the incredible agricultural productivity or wealth or the artwork or the chariots or the pyramids or all the other great achievements of Egypt uh, that would have so impressed the surrounding civilizations and even impress us today. What God does is he looks past that and he sees the blood of the innocents that were crushed in order to achieve this greatness and security. God looks at Pharaoh and sees a failure who has not lived up to his privileged position to maintain order and has instead brought chaos to Egypt. So what this sign of the water and the blood symbolizes is very different, is a very different way of looking at the world uh, viewed by uh, God than by humanity. It is a world where people are required to remember that they were slaves And so they are to provide for the foreigners and the outcasts. It's a world where kings were forbidden to accumulate armies and wealth. 
It's a world where prophets call out kings for not taking care of the poor. It is a world where the thrones of kings are places to get directions on their way to uh, seeing babies born in mangers and where angels sing to shepherds. It is one that rejects the power and rejects the sword and instead says, my kingdom is not like this of the, it is not like that of this world. It is a world where Yahweh himself will enter into humanity and his son will declare that he has heard the sufferings of the world. Jesus doesn't go to the centers of power. He doesn't stand in Rome and admire its technology and grandeur. Instead, he chooses to identify with an insignificant, exploited people group, uh, far from even their centers of power. And he declares good news to the poor. As our passage from Luke 4 tells us, Jesus comes to this world to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, and freedom to the oppressed. And as followers of Christ, we are part of this story. We too need to learn to see the world through Yahweh's eyes and not be distracted by symbols of greatness and power of our world. Instead, we are called to have soft hearts and to hear the cries of the oppressed, to be unimpressed with the winners of this world and accept, and instead look toward the losers and to be moved by the way God is moved to a world founded on love and compassion.